Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection. Hopefully you all had a wonderful Pride Month. You had the opportunity to listen to our special performance with the Visually Interpreting Service, Ira, all about the pre-Stonewall activism and, of course, the tour through Stonewall itself. You can find that in the Pride Connections archives. And we are looking forward to next week's convention, the ACB 60th National Convention. That's right, folks, 60 years. And on top of that all, Blind Pride International is turning 21, and we're finally legal to present those wine tastings. We have 21 programs. I'm not going to bore everybody. If you've been listening to Pride Connection, you know what those 21 programs are, but you can always go to acb.org slash convention and check out our track. Tonight, we have an excellent, excellent conversation with founding member Dwayne Estes and one of our on and off members, Dr. Wayne Piercy. I am so excited to hear what they are going to talk about, all the music that they have in common, all the musical directions they've taken in their lives. So let's sit back and listen to Dwayne and Wayne. Wayne and Dwayne. Isn't that pretty awesome? (laughs) (laughs) Take it away, folks. Hold on, Anthony. This is your friendly producer. Before we get to this wonderful interview, let's hear one of Wayne Piercy's fabulous songs.
I just want to say quick thanks, Anthony, for the introduction. And uh, I'm definitely no doctor, but I guess I do know a thing or two about music. So uh, I'm excited to be a part of the show. And thanks for having us. And um, thanks for welcoming me into the BPI community. Really appreciate that. We're really glad to have you. Thank you. And we are glad to have your interview partner this evening, Dwayne Estes. I'm here and it's good to be here. And uh, so how are you, Wayne? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I am doing well. It's very, very hot. I guess that's what summer's all about. I, I want to just get some some history. Why don't you tell us kind of where you were born? Kind of give us a little rundown about, about your family and, and your early beginnings of playing trumpet and maybe your middle school experience until you got to high school. To start start off, I was born in Austin, Texas in 1986. My dad's no longer with us, but my mom is still around. My parents were both blind. My dad played guitar, uh, country and bluegrass player primarily. And my parents ended up working at the Louisiana Center for the Blind, which is a National Federation of the Blind training center. Obviously, you guys can tell by me being here that I went a completely different direction. So as a kid, I always had a fascination with music and I had lots of crazy reactions to sound as a youngster. And it was when I was about four years old that my dad took me outside on the porch and said, you know, I want to try an experiment. I want to see if this kid has perfect pitch. And so he took out his guitar and he played all the chords for me, major and minor. He didn't give me the sevens, or at least not that I remember. I actually don't remember this very well, but he played all the chords. And then after that, he said, okay, Wayne, identify all the chords for me. And he would play a chord and I would, of course, get it completely correct. And my dad stopped what he was doing and told me, Wayne, you have perfect pitch. This is a gift that you need to always keep with you. It's very special. Not a lot of people have it. And you need to just keep it and hopefully do something with it. I kind of grew up after that, realizing that I was special and that I was a little bit different and that people didn't experience sound the same way I did. So fast forward a few years, I was in fourth grade. We had lived in Louisiana for a few years and had just moved back to Texas. And I was in my fourth grade elementary music school, music class. And we were starting to learn about all the major composers. We were checking out Bach. We were checking about a little bit of Mozart, a little bit of Beethoven. It was really cool. I, I grew very fascinated with the music. There was a, a little thing that we did in fourth grade and fifth grade, it was called music memory. And so what you had to do with that was you'd get 20 pieces and you would have to memorize about 30 seconds of each piece of music. And you'd have to, you couldn't, obviously we weren't playing it, but we needed to identify the piece and the composer. And that was it. What they would do though, which was very clever, was they would also give us alternate versions of the same piece. So it could be recorded with a synthesizer or maybe it was another arrangement. And we still had to correctly identify those alternate versions. Once we studied for 
several months, those of us who wanted to do this citywide competition, we could go to one of the big concert halls in town and the Austin Civic Orchestra was there and they would actually play those little excerpts of the pieces. And it was crazy. It was cool to hear an orchestra, you know, playing these little excerpts live and you had to write down what you heard and, you know, the same thing like you did in class, except for this time you were writing them down. And, but they also did the alternate versions. So they would play recordings over their big speaker system of different arrangements of the recordings and we had to correctly identify them. They didn't make it easy for us. And those of us who got enough of them right received a award called the Malcolm Gregory Award, which was a lapel pen that we could take with us. And it was really cool. I remember getting that in fourth grade. So that was fun. Um, it was at that point where I said, I want to be a classical music composer. And even though I kind of got sidetracked with trumpet and things like that, it is still something that I'm working towards um, slowly. So fast forward to fifth grade, very briefly, I was doing recorder and was, you know, getting a really good tone out of the instrument. And I remember really the only other person in the room who could get a better tone than me was the teacher. And I remember the teacher having me take all these little kids out and work with them on hot cross buns. And I was having to hear like all these squeaks and all these terrible things, but it was okay. It was, it was cool. Little cool teaching experience as a fifth grader. It was at the end of that year that I got tested for middle school band instruments. And um, that was an interesting experience. I remember going to the middle school that I was going to go to and they handed me a tuba. I could barely hold it, much less couldn't get a sound out of it. Uh, same thing happened with a trombone. They gave me a flute, couldn't get sounds out of any of those. Finally, they handed me a trumpet and I got a little bit of sound out of that. And then after that, they gave me a cornet and the cornet was what ended up being the instrument that I seemed to do the best with. So I started out on a little beat up con director cornet that was almost falling apart in sixth grade. Uh, about three months later, my dad purchased me my first trumpet. And um, that was that was really great and held on to that until I was in high school and got my first professional instrument. During middle school and high school, I did a lot of you know, I did concert band. Um, since my dad was a country and bluegrass guitar player, I was kind of comfortable with the idea of improvisation. So I started jazz band in seventh grade. And I remember anytime they were wanting people to take solos, I would always be the one, pick me, pick me. I want to take the solo. I want to play over the blues. And so I was always, you know, really fascinated with improvisation. And I kept up both classical and jazz playing until, well, until today. I still do both, still play both. So throughout middle school and high school, I did concert band, I did jazz band, I was working on the classical music repertoire, I was working on, you know, improvisation. Um, I did solo and ensemble competition where you go and play the trumpet solos for uh, a judge and they give you a rating based on your performance. I remember, you know, always doing well in those competitions. 
when I was a sophomore in high school, I made Texas All-State Band. And that was an amazing, amazing experience. And I'll never forget being in Texas All-State. It was one of the best moments of my life. It was just really fantastic. I'm remembering at some point that you told me that you also played in marching band. I did. It was kind of, um, shall I say, it was it was rocky, but I managed to do it. Um, in Texas, our band was so competitive that they really didn't want me on the field that much. So what I ended up doing was marching, you know, during some of the football games, but I wouldn't march for competition because the drill was too hard and they would get counted off for any sort of minor mistake. The standards in Texas were really, really, really high. But I did learn all the fundamentals. Um, I learned how to mark time. I learned, you know, left face, right face. I learned how to do lateral slides where you point your feet sideways and keep your horn towards the sideline. I learned how to march forwards, eight to five stride, backwards, eight to five, 16 to five stride, eight to five and 16 to five. Those are eight steps equals five yards and 16 to five is 16 steps equals five yards. So I had to basically just memorize how those steps feel. And some of the really hard drills, when you start getting into upper level marching bands, sometimes they'll do six to five. And then the drum and bugle cores, they'll do four to five. So you're literally on your toes running the whole time. It's crazy. Did you have assistance? When I moved to Louisiana, the band program wasn't as competitive. So I was actually able to participate more fully in the marching part of it. What would happen was, and they used the same fundamentals. They used all the same things I talked about. So it was still a core style marching band. So I was able to do the same things. The band director was writing the drill rather than purchasing the drill from a professional drill writer, which is what we were doing in Texas. The band directors were writing the drill. And so they would make sure that I was most of the time next to the same person. So if I did get out of line for whatever reason, the person would kind of give me like a nudge or, you know, kind of reach their left hand out and just sort of kind of gently put me back into place. Um, but I would, you know, do my best to memorize all the steps. And um, it's kind of like learning. I looked at it like this. I looked at it like learning a route, learning an O&M, an O&M lesson to go to the grocery store or maybe to a bus stop you're unfamiliar with. There are just steps that you have to follow. And so I looked at marching like that. So that's that's how I was able to complete that and participate in the band fully. So it was very cool. One thing I also want to highlight too is during parades and things like that, what I would do was the same trumpet player that was next to me during drills, we would march in parade block together. So what I would do is I would link elbows with the other trumpet player so that we could both hold our horns up. Because we had to hold them up 10 degrees above level. Um, everything had to be uniform. And so if we linked elbows, there was never any sort of guesswork as to, okay, when is your horn going up? When, are you, when, are, when is your horn going down? And also, if we kept our elbows out, both of us, 
then we were equidistant spacing. Our, our spacing was equidistant apart. So you'd have had to look really close to realize that there was a blind trumpet player in the parade block. That's how I did that. If I, I haven't, of course, done any parades since high school, but if I had to do that again, that's, that's what I would do. I would, you know, I would do the same thing. I'd link up with a trumpet player and link elbows with them. And then we would be able to both put our horns up at the same time and both put our horns down at the same time. So that's, that's how it worked. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we could have done drill that way, but I don't, I don't know if that would have worked because the lines were pretty elaborate and you were making different shapes and, you know, things like that. So I think it, it, maybe it wouldn't have worked out that way. I don't know. Don't you wish you could go back and (laughs) take another stab so you could experiment with that sort of thing. But um, at any rate, it, it was what it was. And I had a, I had a really good time. I wished that I could have marched drum and bugle corps, but that was really just going to be impossible. Maybe at some point, what we need to do is, you know, those of us who are interested in doing something like this, just develop a disabilities core and have blind musicians and things like that, marching with, you know, sighted musicians and things like that. And we could compete open class. And I don't know, it might be kind of, might be kind of interesting to do something like that. I would be, I would be down to get back there, get back out on the field, Again, I, I, I do miss it. I definitely miss it. Well, I will be happy to leave the marching band to you, my friend. Being a piano <laughs> player, I didn't have to do it. They tried to talk me into playing tuba. I could make the thing sound, but it weighed too much and it was too hot. And I said, no, thank you. I, I just continued to pluck away at the at the piano. In seventh grade, when you when you started jazz band was was that like a middle school jazz band yes it was i mean i'm, I'm sure you all were pr- playing repertoire that were that was really suited to kind of where you were i remember we did like sesame street and we did louis louis that was one thing we did um, we had a couple other you know middle school charts that we did the assistant director at my middle school was always in charge of the jazz band so in eighth grade we got a, a different assistant director and we were still playing middle school charts but they were harder we actually went to some competitions in Central Texas and did really well. That was cool. We had we had fun doing that. Of course, got me more chances to solo. I did all city jazz when I was a seventh grader and eighth yeah. grader. So I got into I got into stuff like that. I made region band when I was in eighth grade. So, you know, got to do the concert band thing with other kids. Been in a lot of really good honor bands like that throughout middle school and high school. Those are always incredible experiences. They are. For, for me, anytime I got to, to participate like in an all-city group or all-state group, getting to work with other musicians that, that played that well and also getting to meet other people who were my age that were really good players and, and that they were excited about it. It was just, it was, it was, it was really cool. And in some ways it was almost kind of life-changing because it's kind of like, there's somebody else out here that does this too. And they do it real good too. Yeah, no, definitely. It was, oh my God. I, I just never, I just have to, to, to tell you guys about Texas Allstate because ah, it was just, <laughs> it's just so cool. So I remember, you know, how big the band was. There was about a hundred, 150 kids. And I remember 
and this was for four A schools only. This, so this is a concert band or a marching yes, band? yes. This was a concert. They didn't do marching. They didn't do that. So so there were about 150 kids from all across the state for this classification of schools. So Texas divides all state into you compete by the size of your school. So they have 1A, 2A, 3A. Those kids are all grouped together. And then there's 4A schools. And then the biggest schools are 5A schools. Those schools are like really huge, like really, really big schools. So I was in 4A. And I remember there was about 150 kids. They had one band. It was just insane. I remember there was a <laughs> 21 trumpets in there. And then I remember that there was a, a big row of bass clarinets. And then there was about four contrabass clarinets. So about seven bass clarinets and three or four contrabass clarinets. And man, when they would play low and they would play loud, like all these kids were so good, you know, they just fill up their horns with air, you know? Yeah. And man, your chest would rattle. It's kind of, I guess, think about being like in a church where there's a really, really amazing, huge pipe organ with thousands of pipes in it, you know, and right. they hit those, right. they play the low notes and your whole chest just rattles, you know, just, it just, it becomes part of the the vibration. And that's how it was listening to these, these kids play contra bass clarinet and, and bass clarinet together. It was just like, like this big wall of sound and it was just oh it's just amazing and you know it's you know you get like three or four days to put a concert together and the music's tough and and it's just so it was just so much fun and not only that but there was an exhibit hall there with tons of instrument manufacturers and music stores and things like that i mean if you wanted to you could if you had the money, you could buy, you could buy whatever you wanted there. You could buy trumpets, you could buy clarinets, you could buy anything you wanted. They even had, you know, guitars and basses and all kinds of stuff. But I learned so much about trumpets, what was available, mouthpieces, tons of stuff. I learned so much about things I'd never known before. That was the first time I'd ever gotten to try a C trumpet or piccolo trumpets, E-flat trumpets, E-flat cornets. I mean, it was just heaven. (laughs) That's all I can really say. It was just heaven. This is your producer jumping in again. Let's take a break to hear another tune from Wayne Piercy.
my my next question is, how did you do this blind? Because you you, you couldn't see to read the music. Right. So I I you know, I'm one of these perfect pitch guys. So I can hear pretty well, I guess. You know, when you're in school band, I mean, you're going to rehearse every single day. So you've got lots of chances to hear what your part's going to be. And generally, the school bands, even the top level ones, they're not small enough ever to make a true, you know, Frederick Fennell, Eastman style wind ensemble where you have, you know, just one or two players on a part kind of thing. So I think the honor wind ensemble at my school in high school had about probably about 60, 65 players in it, something like that. So, so you're always, so, you're always doubling with someone else. So you would have the opportunity to hear the music at school literally while you were playing it. But was there ever anything that was that, that was at a level where that you needed someone to record this so I can take this home and shed this myself and get it together. Oddly enough, in school, in high school, I didn't run into that. I will say, though, really quickly that I did get music recorded because there was one year, uh, my, my sophomore year, I was a section leader in marching band. And so they wanted me to memorize all the trumpet parts for the show, first, second, and third trumpets. So they recorded my parts and I memorized all the parts and figured out how they all fit together and that sort of thing. The other thing I was going to mention to you, Dwayne, is that whenever I would get, you know, music for Allstate or for region band or things like that, if there weren't going to be a lot of rehearsals, that sort of thing, I would get those pieces recorded if I could. Sometimes people were too busy and I didn't really there were a couple of situations where I just didn't really get the music in that much uh, advance notice. So I had to scramble a couple of times. And I remember running into a couple of situations in the Austin Youth Orchestra where I don't know what it was, if it was just I was too busy or in school juggling other things, but I, I was having trouble learning my music. And, you know, we only rehearsed once a week. And so I had to get somebody to record those parts. And I don't know. I think there were a couple of situations where I just didn't learn it all. It ended up that way. And I hate to admit that, but there were a couple of situations like that. But especially when I was able to get things recorded in advance or when I was able to have a lot of rehearsals, it was easier to get all that stuff learned and really have it prepared. Your first two years of high school were we're in Austin. Yeah, that's right. Then I moved to Louisiana after that. Back to Louisiana because my parents went back to their jobs at the at the Louisiana Center for the Blind. I bet that was quite a shock. Yeah, it was. It was a weird thing. My dad, and not to get into a bunch of details, but my dad had a cafeteria that was through the Randolph Shepard vendors program. And um, they kept moving his customers because they were, it was all on state property and they kept moving his customers. And it just got to be that he was just losing so much money because every time they would move a whole bunch of people, then there went his customer base and he didn't have control over when they were going to 
when they were going to move people. And so my dad ended up having to file for bankruptcy and just eventually just wanted out. So my parents ended up moving back to Louisiana yeah, because of that. So there in Louisiana, I'm sure you were probably one of the best, if not the best. Oh, I was definitely the best. Yeah, for sure. I had no, I had virtually no competition, not in my school anyway. (laughs) So did you participate in, in like, uh, any all state kind of things there in Louisiana? I did. I did. I did all state there once. I did that my senior year. My junior year, I did a I did a young artist competition in Montgomery, Alabama. I also did both years of high school. I did the uh, Arclatex band conference. Um, so it was kind of like all state, but not. Most of the kids were from South Louisiana that went to those. I did jazz also in school. And that's, of course, where I was mentioning I did I did marching band and actually got to more fully participate in the program because marching wasn't as competitive as it was in Texas. And I also, in addition to going to high school, you know, doing high school all-state band in Louisiana and doing district honor bands, architects, all that, all that fun stuff, I got to be a part of a semi-professional jazz band my senior year of high school. And we played gigs. We actually played real gigs that paid money. So that was pretty cool. There was a big band and um, they weren't super rigid on how many people they had though. So we always, I remember when I started, there were like six or seven trumpets. So sometimes I would just double, you know, double with, with people or sometimes I would just, you know, pick and choose which parts to play, you know, that kind of thing. And then I was oftentimes the featured soloist. That was pretty cool. So I got, and we actually played, you know, real, like we were playing real charts, you know, we were playing like that old black magic. We were playing, you know, some other Sinatra tunes, you know, we did a night in Tunisia, you know, these were not high school charts. These were like real, these were like real charts. That was really cool. There was a, we actually had a guy and he was an older guy. His name was Hoppy Hallman. He was an arranger and he, I guess he'd been in LA for many, many, many years, but he moved back to Louisiana to take care of his mother or something like that. But anyway, he would, he wrote some charts for our, our group too. So while you were finishing up high school in Louisiana, I would imagine you started sort of the process of thinking about where you were going to go to music school. Was there ever a question in your mind as to whether or not you were going to go to music school? No, I knew damn well I was going to music school. <laughs> I didn't even want to be in high school. <laughs> wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> I wanted, I just wanted to go straight to doing what it is I was supposed to do. And that was anything else was basically standing in my way at that point in my life. I definitely was hell bent on going to music school. I know that you went to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston and you still reside in Boston. I do. Yep. First of all, how did you find Berkeley? And second of all, what drew you to Berkeley and, and, and uh, how'd you end up getting there? So there was a guy in the Equinox Jazz Orchestra that I became good friends with. He was a sax player. His name was Thad Noland. And Thad 
was super into jazz, but not just playing the big band stuff. Like he was pursuing everything. You know, he, he wanted to, he was learning about Coltrane. He had learned about Coltrane, Monk, Wayne Shorter, all these guys that I'd never heard of before, you know, um, the most I'd really heard of was Wynton Marcellus, you know, Wynton was, and still is my number one favorite trumpet player ever. So Thad kind of took me under his wing and started showing me standards because I didn't know any standards. We were just playing big band charts in high school. I didn't know. I didn't know that I needed to learn tunes. No one told me. No one told me that I needed to be able to play all these tunes out of the real book and, you know, all, all, all this stuff and memorize all these things. And so, you know, he took me under my wing and st- under his wing and started showing me bebop. You know, I started getting turned on to Kind of Blue and other albums like that. And um, so I really, I grew a lot that year. And I remember playing a couple of little gigs in um, nursing homes around the Monroe, Louisiana area. And that was just fantastic because, you know, I was actually getting professional, you know, real world experience. So by the time I had gotten to Berkeley, I had already played a couple of gigs. I mean, I hadn't played a lot, but I, I had played enough to know what to do and what was expected. Did he go to Berkeley? So he told me about Berkeley. I ended up going first and then he and his wife moved to Boston later and went to Berkeley a couple of years after I got here. We went on a tour of the campus in 2005 and I was really fascinated by the school. I really liked how they had, you know, all these different styles of music. I really was intrigued by the fact that, you know, I could play classical and I could play jazz too. And I liked how they had all these all this technology around. It was very cool how they had, you know, Macs everywhere. At the time, Macs weren't accessible very much anyway. There there was some rudimentary accessibility in place, but none of the music software was accessible on the Mac at that point. But I thought that this might be a really interesting place for a blind person to go because of the fact that there was so much music technology around. Little did I know that was going to make my life harder. <laughs> Although looking back on it now, it would have been tough at, in any music school, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Thad, you know, took me on a tour of the campus. We, we, we had a guide take us around everywhere. We got to see the Rainbow Big Band perform at the Berkeley Performance Center. Um, that was led by Phil Wilson, who I got to work with a little bit when I was a student there. I'd never taken a subway before, never taken, you know, a train like that before. So that was a neat experience. Going around Boston was super cool. We had a hotel in Brookline and it was just neat. It was so cool. And so I decided that that's what I wanted to go do. I wanted to go audition, you know, for Berkeley. Looking back on it now, I probably should have looked at New England Conservatory while I was in Boston too, but I didn't. I kind of made up my mind that Berkeley was what I wanted to do. And so that's what I auditioned for. And, and I ended up getting accepted. That was very cool. Well, what did your folks think when you came back home and announced, I'm going to Boston to the Berkeley College of Music? Oh, my parents were, you know, of course, very supportive of it. And my dad, especially, well, both of them, they both knew. And they told me several times, you know, they, they had said, 
we knew you were always going to be involved in music as a kid. We just didn't know what instrument you were going to pick. But we always knew that you were going to be involved in music some way, somehow. We just didn't know what you were going to do. So we left that up to you. And we're so happy that you're going to music school and, and we're supportive of you, you know, every step of the way. That was great. My dad was always, even though we didn't play the same styles of music or were into the same players, my dad was always super supportive of me. And so was my mom. And so I never had any opposition. I hear horror stories about kids where their parents are just like, you know, I'm not paying for this or, you know, why don't you, why don't you do something else? I will say though, that my mom was harassed by other people that worked at the training center. Basically he shouldn't go into music. He needs to have a backup plan. Just giving her all kinds of grief about the fact that I was going to go be a musician and that sort of thing. So, but my mom didn't back down and was just like, no, Wayne's doing what Wayne wants to do. And that's it. That was it. I can certainly relate to that. I decided I was going to be a professional musician when I was 10 years old. And I didn't see a reason for any kind of backup plan. And now that a few years have gone by and I've had to deal with this journey into blindness, things have certainly changed for me. But I don't know what else I would have done. I, I, I don't even know what a plan B could have been. Right. Uh, exactly. And I mean, you know, I still, even though I feel like I've had some, maybe I've had some roadblocks in the way, both personal and maybe otherwise, I still don't see myself doing anything other than music. So my job is to just figure it out. My job is to figure out how I'm going to do it. And I've, I've been doing it, but I'm at this point in my life kind of reinventing myself a bit. So I just have to figure it out and take it one step at a time and just do what I said I was going to do. Do what I'm destined to do. So that's, that's what I'll have to do. When you left Louisiana, tell us what you left with. And when you got to Boston, did you stay in the dorm? Where did you live? Well, my rehab agency did not fund me very quickly. I needed a lot of extra funding to go to Berkeley because I only had half my tuition covered by scholarship. And if you guys don't know, Berkeley is really, really, really expensive. So they had to pull some strings to get me funding to go to school there. I didn't get to stay in the dorms because they didn't give me the go-ahead. They didn't give me the funding right away. So what I had to do, my mom had to help me find housing. I was getting a dog and my mom had to find me a place to live. And so it was so hard because, you know, Boston, for those of you guys who don't realize how crazy Boston is with its college student scene, Boston has about 250,000 plus college students. So it's a large city, even without the, the normal residents that aren't college students, but then add another 250,000 plus college students. And many of them are moving every year, you know, or every, you know, every couple of years, every four years. It's just insane. My mom looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. And finally, she found a place for me in Somerville. And it was way out in the middle. Well, not middle, nowhere, but it was in a part of Somerville where there wasn't a lot of access to 
there was there were a couple buses, but they were sometimes unreliable. And you had to take those buses just to get to the train. And then you had to take the train to get into into the, the back bay area where the school was. So it was pretty rough for <laughs> for a couple of years. But I may do. I may do. My mom stayed with me. When I got to Boston, my mom stayed with me for two weeks because I was really having, I was really kind of struggling a little bit, getting settled in and figuring out whether I could really do it. And it was difficult, but I, I, I managed and it was all, it was all good. And um, I, I slowly met friends and people like that. And so finally my mom ended up leaving and I, I kind of had fallen into a groove. And, and so then I could get myself to school safely. And my mom helped me learn the routes, you know, to and from school. We tried a, a couple different routes to see, you know, which ones would work the best, that sort of thing. So it was, it was all good. It was all good. It was stressful, but we made it work. And that's how that ended up. Learning any new route is stressful. <laughs> it depends. It depends on what it is. But this one was a little much because I had to take a bus and a train and then had to learn the other options to get home and which one of those was I going to be the most comfortable with at any given point, that sort of thing. Right, right. Here in St. Louis, I deal with trains. I deal with train and, and bus, occasionally Uber, but I, I try to do as much public transportation as possible. Never ceases to amaze me at how what should be very simple doesn't always work out to be very simple. No, no, definitely. And just even some routes are just so, <laughs> they're just so convoluted. It just yes. makes no sense. I mean, there's, there's not very many good ways to get from here to certain parts of Cambridge, for instance. Right. If you're going just to Harvard Square, well, you've, you've got the bus 66 and that's pretty, that's pretty direct. But if you want to get to like Inman Square or, you know, something else, well, you've got to do, there's more maneuvers you've got to go through. And it's like, really guys, like, why can't we have more routes be more, <laughs> more direct and straightforward, <laughs> that kind of thing. My little bit of connection with, with Berkeley is through a mentor from southern indiana his his name was red wick and red uh, was a pianist and he actually went to high school with gary burton i remember you telling me about this during some and you know casual conversation (laughs) yeah and and uh so they sort of sort of grew up together and of course gary burton went on to be gary burton and At one at one point, he was president of Berkeley, Berkeley College of Music, and so that was kind of my maybe my 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 little bit bit of a fringe on on onto the Berkeley thing. Uh, I certainly had other friends that went that went to Berkeley. I was at Berkeley once. I was almost forty, and at the age of almost almost forty. I felt like then and possibly, possibly then I might be ready to go to Berkeley, but I still wasn't sure. <laughs> those That's folks so were intense. Those folks. Yeah. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. For sure. How did you manage like um, theory one and, and music history and all those classes where there's 
notation that needs to be, how did that all work for you? I actually ended up withdrawing from music history because I got too far behind with one teacher. I don't know what his deal was, but he never sent the midterm exam to the disability services office. So I don't know what the deal was with that, but I was way in over my head. He was making it really, really tough. Like you had to memorize things like the rhythmic mode of certain chants and things like that. And it was just, I had way too much on my plate that semester. I think if I had done his music history class in a schedule where I had less to do, it would have worked out better. But I had way too much on my plate that semester. So I ended up withdrawing from that class and took it with another teacher. The other teacher that I took the class with, he ended up treating it more like a survey class. And yes, we had to, we had to learn a lot of terms and things like that. But he made all the tests multiple choice and he didn't have us do any research papers. So, and uh, there was some listening where we had to identify, is this plain chant? Is this two-part organum? Is it three, four-part organum? Is it, is this a concerto? Is this a sonata? Is this a symphony? You know, that kind of thing. So more basic, more basic stuff. That was a better entry point, I think, for me. And I think a lot of the kids did pretty well in his class. I wasn't like this, but there were plenty of students at the school who were just like pop singers and they really just could not be bothered with any of this Western music history stuff. I thought it was the greatest thing ever, but they just couldn't be bothered. I think some of the teachers realized that and so they made those classes a bit easier for them, but it it worked out for me because I was able to get, you know, my feet wet without being super intimidated. Music theory, that sort of thing. When I entered Berkeley. None of the music software really was accessible on the Mac yet. I started Berkeley as a freshman in the fall of 2007. So blind people were still stuck on Windows and Sonar and that whole thing. My rehab agency, just like everything else they did, they took forever to buy equipment. Before I went to school, I had about a week's worth of training at Dancing Dots, which produces braille music and they also have some braille music rendering software and music notation software that they have developed scripts for. They also were resellers of Sonar back in the day and they sold the uh, cake talking scripts for Sonar, which allowed JAWS to access the program's interface. I had about a week's worth of training at Dancing Dots. And when I got to school, I went six weeks without any technology. I didn't have any computer, nothing. There were no PCs anywhere with JAWS. It was really, really bad. And I threw myself into the fire from the performance side. I started preparing a recital and I did a recital at the end of that semester. That was crazy. It was probably hard enough to be a senior recital, but I did that my first semester. So it was pretty wild. Well, guys, this seems like a perfect opportunity for me to step back in. Sounds like you had a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to tune in on the full conversation. Wayne, is there anywhere that folks can go find your music? I know you're generously giving us a couple of pieces to play throughout the show, but um, is there anywhere else they can go to hear your music? Probably the best place at this point is to go check out my YouTube channel. I've got a couple of full concerts up there, some classical stuff, jazz stuff. Um, There's a piece on uh, Natural Trumpet up there. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And I have an Instagram too. And of course, you can find me on Clubhouse. Spell your name for everyone. So if they're looking for you, they have the right spelling. Yep. It's W-A-Y-N-E 
and the last name is Piercy, P-E-A-R-C-Y. Well, for all you listening out there, Pride Connection will be off air for the next couple of weeks because of convention, but we will be back in August with a great show. Thank you all. Thank you, Dwayne and Wayne. And I hope uh, you enjoyed doing Pride Connection. Of course. Of course. It was my pleasure. And uh, I think Wayne's a pretty good old boy. I think so, too. I'm so very glad he's a BPI member. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org and join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. Someday we'll find it, the Rainbow Connection, the Lover.